Okay, so I'm reading three selected passages uh, tonight from Matthew. Um, first is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, and then verses 24 to 30 and 36 to 43 from chapter 13. So please follow along on the screen or your Bible or device, starting Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. And from Matthew chapter 13. He presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. The Landover servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did all the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No, he said. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. And as Mike comes to unpack these passages, may God help us to apply those words to our lives. Thanks, Jordan. 
Uh, it's great to see you all tonight. If I haven't met you before, my name is Mike, lead pastor here at Tingabi Anglican Church. And uh, if, you, um, if you've brought a friend tonight, maybe you're thinking, oof, what a night to bring a friend, right? It's like hell and sort of fire and brimstone night. I've mostly been enjoying the parable series. Uh, they're beautiful snapshots of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this one is a bit confronting. Uh, and, uh, you know, it plays into all the caricatures of Christianity. You know, that kind of, that simplistic idea that, you know, good people go to heaven and, and maybe not so good people go to that other place. Uh, that preachers who use kind of the imagery of fire and brimstone, you know, Dante's Inferno to drive fear into people to control them. Yeah, I feel all that as a preacher as we come to tonight's passage. And yet, in our desire to preach the full counsel of God, that we might see Jesus uh, in all His fullness as well as the kingdom of heaven that he points to, uh, I feel obligated to look at passages like what we're looking at tonight. Uh, I want us to kind of step inside some of the simplifications we have with them, we bring assumptions and stuff, we bring to passages like this. I kind of want to, uh, you know, get, get past some of these caricatures and sort of, you know, step inside the house, as it were, as Jesus shows us the fuller picture, as we listen to Jesus, as, he, as He's like our tour guide, uh, showing us the full realities of heaven and earth. Uh, and l I suppose lest we come away with half-truths that can be quite troublesome. Uh, I'm not sure how you're feeling about all these things tonight, but as a way of kind of example of half-truths and kind of not seeing the full picture and being on point perhaps with the parable of the plank in the eye, let me tell you a story about my middle child, it's always the middle child. Um, he once got a stick in his eye. He was, uh, he was playing in the dirt, uh, as, uh, as little people do, and uh, they didn't have any spades. They didn't bother with spades, right? Why bother with a spade when you got a stick? And so they had this big stick, and they're kind of stabbing the dirt, and they're making like little, well, not so little craters, actually. It's impressive what they came up with, because uh, I arrived on the scene at the end of this story. And, uh, and, and it's just Lewis and his little mate, and uh, where they are digging, and uh, it was Lewis's mate turn to kind of like have the stab in the dirt. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lewis thought he'd have a look at the action, and as he comes over the mound, cops an upstroke right into the eye. Oh my goodness. There was a lot of screaming, uh, and uh, it, it was not very happy. That's straight to the eye doctor. Uh, and you know, a little splinter kind of in the arm when you're trying to remove that from a child can often wreak all kinds of havoc, you know, like, ah, it hurts so much. It's like, well, just let us help you, right? So much more so with the eye. It's a sensitive part of the body. Uh, and uh, there's a number of stories that I could share in this space. On one occasion, we had to sort of hold Lewis down and, uh, and, he, and you know, re really restrain him as we care for him. He actually yells out, you are trying to kill me. <laughs> the reason why I share this story uh, is if you were on the other side of the first aid room, uh, you know, in this example, uh, and if you heard a child screaming that out, you'd want to stop and pay attention because that's a pretty disconcerting thing to hear. But it's a half-truth. Uh, you've heard a truth, but it's not in the full picture. Uh, and so perhaps as we look at passages tonight, let's actually take time, as uncomfortable as it might be, to actually open the door, to, to look in, to get the fuller truth uh, that we might hear the full counsel of God. Even Jesus says, if you have ears, listen. This is what I want you to hear today. That living well needs a God and a friend, as we'll come to, who cares enough to judge well. We need a God who cares enough to judge well. I'm going to spend most of our time in the parable of the wheat and the weeds uh, because it's challenging and needs to be unpacked well. Uh, it also creates the broader frame and as a way of applying uh, living in light of God's judgment, good judgment, uh, I'll use the parable of the speck and the plank to explore our judgment of, um, of ourselves and others as we live in this world. So, let me begin. The kingdom of heaven is like 
or can be compared to is the way that Jesus starts a number of parables. In fact, Isaac's going to be preaching next week on a bunch of little parables that start just like this, giving us snapshots of the kingdom of heaven. In this particular example, uh, Jesus goes on to share the story of a man who sowed seeds in his field. And during the night, while most people were sleeping, although I suspect kind of the owner of this field wasn't sleeping because he knew what was happening, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. I'm pretty sure that enemy's been in my garden. Uh, Cut scene at that point, the plants begin to sprout. And while it looks like kind of a, you know, a blank canvas of a, of a field, uh, it soon becomes apparent that there's a problem. Because as the plants sprout, uh, there's maybe a few more things that are coming up in the field than they expected. The gardeners do what gardeners should do, come to the master. They say, do you want us to weed the field? I'd be like, heck yeah, I'm not weeding that, you do it. Um, but that's not what the master of the field, the owner of the field, wants the, ma- the, wi- the gardeners to do. And that's for two reasons. Firstly, he says, you uproot the wheat because these weeds are so entangled in the wheat. But secondly, implied by this, and I think quite interesting to contemplate, is the servants are not as good judges as they think they are. Uh, They know there's a problem, but they don't know the full extent of the problem, nor they know how to sort of enact justice for the field. And I think that's made quite clear in the words that Jesus uses, actually, because it's not just the wheat and the weeds. Uh, Some translations will say tares instead of uh, weeds. Uh, but it, but it's, it's wheat and darnel. Uh, darnel is, a, is actually often referred to as bastard wheat because it looks like wheat, but it's not. That's wheat on the left and that's darnel on the right. Can you tell the difference? Is it right? Yes. Uh, before they could have uh, ripened, they look very similar. Uh, but if you eat the darnel, you get quite sick. And so you need to know the difference. And so the master is wise. Let's wait till they ripen, until it's harvest time, when we can tell the difference. We'll uproot everything because they're all entangled and we'll separate them out. And so the crowd before Jesus will be like, thanks for the hot tip. I'll go back to my garden. Uh, That's how the parables work, right? They make sense as stories. And you could easily, at one level, walk away from them going, cool. Uh, Except that he started it by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like... And Jesus tells these parables to not only give snapshots of heaven, but but to also draw people into himself. Uh, Because the key to unlocking the parables is the storyteller, is the king of the kingdom. And so the disciples actually lean in. uh, As we get to sort of uh, the, the second or that last reading that Nigel read out. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds and in the field. See what's happening there? Parables in and of themselves are kind of like a judgment in a way. Uh, That is, of all the people who gather before Jesus, who will actually lean in? Who will want to know more? Who will follow Jesus? Many people left with tidbits of information. The disciples stayed and said, tell us more, Jesus, we don't understand. And this is where it gets kind of strange and confronting, right? As Jesus explains this parable, the sower is Jesus. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, which at one level kind of sounds like Jesus describing himself as being one with humanity, the Son of Man, except that's not what Jesus is doing at all. He's claiming the title from Daniel, the apocalyptic book of kind of great epic cinematic awesomeness, where where the Son of Man is the one coming on the clouds of heaven with the authority of God to judge. That's a big title. And as Jesus claims that, he says, the field is the world and the seed sown that grows up as wheat are the children of the kingdom. 
In this manner, it kind of sounds quite similar to those uh, to, to the parable of the sower. You know, the, the four so- uh, soils and, and the seed growing up in each. The, the purpose of that parable, which is the beginning of chapter 13, is that you would listen and put into action the words of Jesus. While similar, this has a different purpose. I think this purpose is actually about how to live in light of evil. And that's made apparent when Jesus introduces the other main character of this, the enemy. And the enemy is none other than Satan. When we drop the Satan word, it kind of, well, it still feels a bit kind of confronting, right? We're not used to talking about Satan. Uh, and I don't think it makes very good dinner conversation. But uh, as a couple of observations just at this point. As Jesus reveals the kingdom of heaven, as the king of that kingdom, he's revealing to us the spiritual reality of all things. And actually, as I contemplate what it means to speak about the full spiritual reality, uh, you know, I've got conflicting thoughts. One is kind of like, no one's into that. But actually, as I think about it, people are. People are more open to there being more to this world than just meets the eye. It feels like sort of 10, 15 years ago that uh, the new atheists like Dawkins and and, uh, Hitchens, maybe even a little bit longer actually, uh, were really kind of uh, vocal and uh, and quite significant kind of people in the social commentary of things, speaking about uh, that God is dead and that all that matters is matter. We're nothing but cosmic space dust. I think they've been unsuccessful in convincing people that. It's not just my thoughts here. A couple of years ago, McCrindle did some research asking people in Australia uh, do they think there's more than what they can see or touch? And it's fascinating that you know, more than half people in all of these questions are very open to the idea uh, that not only there are ghosts, but, but miracles, angels. Do you believe in a higher power, God? Do you have a soul? People are, are really open to the spiritual reality of things, that there is more to us. We are more complicated and we're part of a bigger picture. Uh, I dare say that for many of these people, uh, you know, being open to the spiritual nature of things is, is might look like, oh yeah, there's a, there's a God and he's sort of, you know, or it or whatever, he's, he's guiding me to become my best self, you know, and whatnot. But the story of the Bible is that, that God has revealed himself in history, that we might know him. Uh, and as Jesus, the full revealer of God, uh, reveals these things, he also reveals to us uh, Satan and the work of Satan in this world. Um, but before we sort of come to think of this parable as like a, a, a battle of the fields, you know, Harry Potter versus Voldemort, uh, Jesus versus Satan, there's a few things worth noticing in this parable. Firstly, it's uh, the owner sowing seeds in his own field. Uh, as Jesus explains the parable, Jesus refers to his kingdom. He is not unaware of the devil's schemes and he has a plan to deal with the devil. That's kind of the main point of this passage. Now, as we, as we come to kind of Jesus dealing with the devil and the ultimate judgment that comes uh, as part of dealing with the devil, uh, there's a few things just worth exploring here. Wha- one is um, that Jesus really is ushering in, as the storyteller and the king, the kingdom of heaven. He says that he stands in the midst of people, that the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's not just kind of like a, oh, I'm handing out free tickets to heaven and it's over there in the future. Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of heaven on earth, as it were. Uh, and, uh, and, and Jesus, as he does that, is magnetizing an opposition. I was re- reading uh, Mark's gospel with uh, someone this week, as we've been doing every fortnight, exploring uh, who Jesus is. This person doesn't yet believe in Jesus. And uh, as we looked at a passage similar to this, he says, 
aren't all these descriptions of like you know demon possession and whatnot are they not just like descriptions of mental illness that they didn't quite understand back then uh, and that makes sense to us that kind of we know a lot more now than we they did and it'll be easy to make that's a fair question but i said to him no i don't think so because jesus speaks to the demons with authority not to a mental illness and as he speaks to the demons with authority he casts them out because he has power over the demons and the point is that jesus is king not just of the this world but of the whole spiritual realm and it also makes sense that if jesus is the king of the kingdom then the enemy would throw everything at him and so as jesus walks to earth it's you know like you can see the opposition kind of rallying against him but it's no sweat of jesus because he has authority over the spiritual realm Uh, but it's not just that the demons and the sort of spiritual nature it's the, the, the religious leaders of the day are also counted in the opposition of Jesus. Uh, either side of Matthew 13 here, Jesus is in conflict with the religious leaders who are really not okay with him claiming titles like the Son of Man. A- and, and they rally against him also. And if we were to think of actually the, 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 the kind of the wheat and the darnel looking so similar, I think Jesus is actually saying, watch out for the Pharisees. They look like the children of the kingdom. They look like that. But in John 8, he calls them children of the devil. Now, that's a pretty confronting statement. But Jesus is saying, be careful. There is more than what you see going on here. And we need God's help to see the bigger picture. Now, like the servants, we know there's something wrong in the field. Uh, We know there is an evil in this world. We feel the evil in this world. It could be the frustration of your plans being thwarted by sin or sickness. It could be the anxiety about what negative things people are saying of you. It could be watching relationships fracture, family, precious ones. It could be the reeling from being used, the horror of war and violence. All of these things, evil perpetuated in this world, brings forth in us all kinds of feelings, opinions, judgment, action, but ultimately we're not very good judges. We're not very good judges of the full reality of things. And especially if you have suffered from evil and sought to uh, enact justice, you know that we often inflict injustice in our pursuit of justice. The answer to the parable here, the answer to how do we live in this world in light of evil, how might we persevere, is that Jesus will judge well. And we ought to have confidence in him. Now, as we approach this last part of kind of Jesus explaining the parable at the end of the ages, and he speaks of his judgment, uh, there are two things that kind of stand out as I want to wrestle with this. One is the goodness of justice. The Bible is really clear, uh, and and our hearts long for justice, as as I'll explain. But, But the second part is, as Jesus separates out the wheat and the weeds, that the picture of of kind of the finality and of the and of the torment as it were it's confronting and so i actually want to ask the kind of obvious question of how the description of that impacts the goodness of god is god good to act judgment like this so let me let me wrestle with these two questions or two kind of parts the goodness of justice or i've kind of subtitled this a little bit getting the hell out of here there's jesus rolls out the kingdom of heaven he's also pushing back the tides of hell uh, so the Bible is consistent on, uh, on justice and judgment that at the end, God, as we see here, especially Jesus, will return to set things right. And we need this. 
For anyone who has suffered injustice, you know the heinous and grievous fracture of existence and that there is real evil and it really needs to be dealt with. It's so systemic that our best attempts at justice seem to be just a band-aid on a fatal gash. Of course, the big things come to mind. War, sex trafficking, child abuse, hate crimes. I could go on and on and on. But it goes deeper than that. We are both more evil and that rampant evil is more pedestrian than we imagine. I've been struck as I'm thinking about these things by the phrase, the banality of evil. Some of you might have heard that phrase. It was sort of popularized by Hannah Arendt, a philosopher reporting on the World War II war crimes, uh, war crimes trial. And in focus, uh, one of the people in focus in that trial was Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi operative responsible for organizing the transportation of millions of Jews. I don't want to dwell on that because it's obviously a heinous crime, grotesque, and that came out in the trial. But what also came out was that as Eichmann testified, there was a bland bureaucraticness to the way he operated. For the heinousness of the crimes, he didn't seem as perverted or sadistic as you might expect. Hannah describes him as terrifyingly normal. His story was one of thoughtlessness, carrying out orders unaware of the horrendous evil that he was part of. He demonstrated a banality of evil. I've heard it said that we are all capable of great evil in the right circumstances. And the Bible's claim is that we are perpetrators in this banality of evil. What is God to do? Well, Psalm 96 puts it like this. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for He comes, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His fairness. God's response to evil, whether banal or otherwise, is that He will correct it. So that when Martin Luther Jr. uh, makes his famous I Have a Dream speech, he's able to refer to both Amos and Isaiah Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Isaiah 40, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight. Do we not long for these things, for God to correct the injustices of this world? And so indeed there is rejoicing as we contemplate the judgment of God, the justice of God. And so as Jesus exercises demons, speaks against sin and calls people to repentance. He is both drawing people into the kingdom of justice, of heaven, where he is king. And he's also pushing back the tides of hell where Satan has influence. Ultimately, at the end, as Jesus explains at the end here, the righteous will shine like the sun in the Father's kingdom. And it's a beautiful picture where God will make straight all that is crooked, where He will call the righteous to Himself. Here is a picture of shalom, of peace, of everything being made right. Do we not long for that? Well, the obvious question is, well, who's the righteous? It's interesting that the passage doesn't say, that Jesus doesn't say, uh, the do-gooders are raised up and they will shine like the stars. No, the righteous And the point here, and the point of the New Testament, the good news of the gospel, is that the only way to be made righteous is not by your merits, because you can't do it. You can't make straight your paths. You can't undo the evil that you have participated in. 
The only way to be righteous is to receive that from Christ. For the Son of Man came with authority, ultimately laid it down, ultimately came to serve, to seek the lost. He died in our place. He said, take, take, I will take the justice and the judgment that we all deserved. And as He hung on that cross, He prayed for us and He gave His Spirit up for us so that we might receive His righteousness. As the disciple Peter later penned, Christ died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God, to make us right with Him. And if you have any anxiety about the judgment of God, asking yourself, am I going to make it through? You know, if you get asked that question, if you died tonight, you know, what will you say before God? And you kind of feel a bit nervous about, know the peace and the certainty and the security of receiving this gift of forgiveness from Christ. The peace that you find in Christ's death for you. That's actually what we looked at at Hope Explored today. It was fantastic to see this one person really wrestle with, so my debts are paid? (laughs) But I've of course skipped over the hard part of this passage, haven't I? For as much as we long for justice, there is still the kind of, the confronting description of the other side of this separation as God brings about, as Jesus brings about righteousness and perfection and justice. And as we look at uh, the harvesters, the, 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 uh, the, the angels, gathering all from Jesus' kingdom who caused sin and those guilty of lawlessness, and being thrown in the furnace, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Even our longing for justice, these disturbing descriptions of judgment and hell in Scripture leave, seem so grotesque and disproportionate, that it casts even a devilish shadow on the goodness of God. I want us to be a church that really wrestles with those kinds of questions, not just smooths it over. I want people to be able to come and ask questions like this. Is God good? How can he send people to hell? Well, Jesus does talk a lot about hell, more than we might have thought. We're very in love with kind of the Jesus who loves, uh, the Jesus of grace, the Jesus of forgiveness, but he speaks of Gehenna, hell, many times. Uh, Gehenna is the Greek word that gets translated as hell, and Gehenna is a reference to the Hebrew location, Valley of Hinnom, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And uh, it's a particular reference to, if we went back to Jeremiah 19, we'd find, uh, you know, God's ancient people, Israel, did something so utterly detestable that God couldn't stand back, that His justice must be enacted. Uh, Israel had betrayed God, stopped following Him and started following other gods. And as a result, they sacrificed their own children to those foreign gods. There is no way God could have stood back. And so His judgment which was greater than the evil shown by Israel, was known as Gehenna afterwards, as Jesus speaks of hell, of God's judgment. But the descriptions of fire and, you know, as I said, play into all of our, you know, caricatures that we might think of with regard to judgment and Christianity. And so let's just, as uncomfortable it is, just pause and slow down a little bit here so that we might understand what Jesus is talking about. Uh, when he speaks of a blazing furnace, uh, it, it is a metaphor, I believe. It, it, similarly, he speaks of a place of outer darkness, and, and it doesn't quite mash to kind of like have outer darkness and, and a blazing furnace. Uh, those two, you know, don't fit together. And so there is a description here, a metaphor. What is that description talking of? 
It is obviously a place of great discomfort. Uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth is a phrase that Jesus uses on multiple times associated with Gehenna. Uh, and, and that is obviously, n- obviously a, a description of extreme discomfort, but also uh, anger and resentment. Uh, what pains me most in thinking about this I- is when I imagine people coming to the realization that Jesus really is king and they've ultimately rejected him. There is an anger a- and resentment in that realization. C.S. Lewis describes these two kinds of people both saying, thy will be done. Uh, Thy will be done as the the, uh, followers of Jesus look to him, and thy will be done, everyone else looking to themselves as a slave to sin. And the description of that slavery to sin is with anger and resentment. That is a terrible picture. Now, while fire is likely a metaphor, and while justice is good, Ultimate judgment results in the weeping and gnashing of teeth. What might we make of that? Well, let me say with that we have confidence in a couple of things. One is that God's good judgment that we spent time exploring in part I- is both eternal and proportionate. Uh, that, that is, that as Jesus speaks of judgment, uh, he does seem to speak of a judgment that fits the context. So he says to a group of people, it will be worse for you than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Romans 2, uh, the Apostle Paul will speak to, um, to God judging works. There's a proportionality here. There is a fairness and equity as God judges well. And yet, grace kind of messes that up, doesn't it? Because as Jesus holds out forgiveness... It breaks the proportionality as He gifts us righteousness. But yet all should be able to see on that final day that God is still fair, even as people reject Him. Now, I don't know how to hold together uh, eternality and proportionality, but what I do know is there is no one better to judge than Jesus. Because He is the one that approaches Jerusalem, even in judgment, and weeps for them. He is the one able to sympathize for us in our weakness because here is a God who took on flesh. Here is a God who who dies for His enemies so that we wouldn't have to face this judgment. And He chooses to suffer the wrath of God the Father for the sake of us that we might be forgiven. If you want to know whether God really is good or whether He can be trusted as the judge of all the earth to do right, then do consider what He has done to save us from hell. Back to the original question that I think this parable is answering. How will we persevere while there is evil? Well, entrusting ourselves to the good King, to the good Judge, the one who takes judgment on Himself and the one who is able to correct all that is crooked, the one who is ultimately able to bring about justice, and righteousness, and the one who is able to show mercy. That is a good judge. I can't hold those things together, but Jesus can. Now, we need help to make sense of this, to live in light of it. And as uh, many brothers and sisters are gathered here tonight, we need each other to live well in light of this gift of salvation and God's good judgment. So as we kind of pivot a bit from that parable and provide a little bit of 
color in the second parable. And as I look to apply this, let me ask the question, how does God's judgment shape the way you judge? Uh, Well, you could easily answer that by saying, well, I don't judge, it's not my place to judge. And I actually asked a bunch of people this week uh, uh, what their thoughts on judgment, on their judgment of others was, and their answer was simple, it's not my place to judge. And they're right, it's Jesus' place to judge. Except that, oh, actually, even Jesus is on their side. In in the beginning of Matthew 7, what does Jesus start with? His opening words, do not judge, right? So they feel safe. But, just to push back against that, we all judge every day. It's kind of part of life. When you say, Mike, good job, not that you have to say that, you're making a judgment. You've made an assessment, right? We make assessments. We measure, we value, we judge in many ways every day. So it's too simplistic to say, do not judge. But there is a kind of judging that Jesus will speak against, and I'm actually calling us to judge well. If we go back to the main thing that I'm trying to get us to see tonight, living well needs a God and a friend who cares enough to judge well. And so let us look at this second little mini parable as I finish up and seek to apply what it means to judge well in light of God's good judgment. And it is a great little picture, isn't it? I mean, it's a ridiculous picture. Uh, in fact, someone this morning dared to say, Mike, I like that selfie of you. Of you on the, on the, you know, that's, that's a harsh judgment. But anyway, maybe they were referring to me as the, I don't know, both of them look bad. But uh, <laughs> it, it is a funny picture. You could imagine, like, you know, this, this person, in all good intentions, helping, and helping if I've become a little bit more kind of suspicious of him as I've grown older in my wisdom. Uh, as, as, you know, as you try and help another, I see you have a speck in your eye. Let me help you. And as you turn around, you whack them in the face with your big plank, right? Uh, and what's that plank even doing? How do you get a plank in your eye? That's way more than a stick. Obviously, it's a metaphor. Um, but how does that plank get there? It gets there because we live life by what we value, a- and we assess what we value. You know, and that's that's a, that's, a, that's good. So, so my children value education. At least I think they value education. And so they do tests, and those tests are not there to condemn them. It's part of their kind of growth. Uh, and, and as we value, and as they value education, and they get tested, it shows you know where they're doing well and where they need to grow. And that's a good thing, is it not? Uh, you might measure and value all kinds of different things. The problem is the way it sort of leaks out, and it does leak. So, for instance, if you value world tra- uh, travel and culture, good on you. But when I tell you that I've been to the Central Coast for a holiday, don't say, oh, I went to Italy. You know, th- th- there's a passive-aggressive kind of judgment that kind of comes out in all kinds of ways. Good on you if you went to Italy. Um, the problem is that we can't see the plank in our eye. We can't see kind of what we value and measure because it's intrinsic to kind of who we are. And as you go and help others, your plank actually causes a lot of problems. And so Jesus says, do not judge, at least not until you've understood things better. And actually, for me, the pivot of this is actually a passage from uh, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaking of his own reflections on this. I didn't put it up on the screen, so just listen to me uh, read it out. Paul says, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I'm not justified by this. So he speaks of having a clean conscience, but he says, I'm not ultimately justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. My justification comes from Him. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes. And and in this kind of statement here, Paul is saying, I have found a way to to split apart my identity and the way I judge, assess, value in this world. 
your judgment of me and my judgment of you. And that's profound. So for every time you say, good job, or for every time that I might say to my kid, hey, you missed a bit and you're wiping up the bench there, like that's me making a judgment or, or you making a judgment, but it's not attached to the judgment of the person. I'm not saying to my child, you're a terrible person for not wiping that, even though you've missed it so many times, right? Uh, or I'm not saying you are the best person ever because you did a good job with that. A and when we think about our own self-talk here and the way it's so intrinsically and often ties to our identity, you know, I should have done this or I shouldn't have done that, that so quickly becomes I'm a terrible person, right? Paul's being able to here say, I am judged by Christ and he has said to me that I am right, that I am righteous because of what he's gifted me. And that liberates me to not worry about what you think of me or what I think of myself. Three things come out of that in light of this parable. Firstly, judgmentalism is dead. Judgmentalism is dead. When Jesus says, do not judge because of the plank in your eye, uh, that, is, uh, uh, that is what he's talking about. That there is no space left to make judgment of people because that is Jesus' job. And he can do that well in a way that we cannot. And, and anyway, what gathers us here tonight is not because we're a bunch of do-gooders, holier than thou, kind of got our life together. What gathers us tonight is that we are the league of the guilty saved by grace. Now, Christians and churches do judgmentalism pretty well, even if they claim not to, right? And so even as I think of uh, just a, a really simple example, when I was a student minister here you know, many years ago, I was welcoming one night at this congregation, the night church. And uh, so as I was standing at the door just there, uh, a lady comes in covered in tattoos. And, uh, and I just made the little comment, like, nice skins. And she just, she started to cry. And I thought, oh man, I really messed that up. Uh, and I said, I'm, I'm sorry to offend you. And she said, actually, no, I just, I actually didn't think I'd be accepted here. So even before like, she's entered the door, she's made the assumption that we, and she's made a judgment in a way, but uh, for good reason, because Christians are judgy. But there's no place left for that. We cannot stand over above anyone else because we're all humbled by the cross. Again, what, what unites us is the fact that we are sinners and acknowledge that, and we're saved by grace. And, and secondly, out of that, it, when Jesus speaks about the beam, the plank of wood in our own eyes, he says, you hypocrites! You're trying to help someone else with a little speck, but you're not seeing kind of the, 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 kind of the, the plank in your eye, the sin in your life. You're not dealing with that while you try and help with someone else. All that's left for us is humility as we receive the gift of Christ. And our posture towards others must be one of humility. We don't know the full picture. Okay, so what, what, what kind of, what humility will look like will be listening and walking alongside, not standing over and judging. And as Jesus forgives us, as He disciples us, as He transforms us, and as He grows us in maturity and wisdom, we might just be able to help. But it will look like humility, and it won't look like judginess. But here's the kicker. This passage doesn't finish with, you know, you hypocrite, deal with your plank, end of story. Jesus says, uh, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. And I think this is important. The splinter is in my brother's eye. That's not cool, right? That would really hurt. But our only way to kind of help that person is to first seek Christ 
and then walk alongside that person. You know, I, I want brothers and sisters being able to speak into my life, to make observations, to make good judgments as a part of speaking wisdom, love and truth into my life. I don't want someone saying, well, it's not my place to judge. You know, you do you. I don't want to play on a soccer team where the coach says, oh, whatever you're feeling like, you know. I want the coach to say, there's the ball, turn around. I screamed that out several times, uh, not even as a coach yesterday. Uh, <laughs> we need brothers and sisters to judge well. Not to be judgy, but to judge well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote uh, Life Together, holds much of what we talked about today together quite well. And he says this, nothing can be more compassionate than a rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Now, we've seen that done wrong. We, we've experienced kind of the, 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 the Christian who has tried to do this and really hurt us. And yet, there is something beautiful when this is done well. It is a ministry of mercy, a, an ultimate offer of genuine fellowship, when we allow nothing but God's Word to stand between us, judging and encouraging, then it is not we who are judging, God alone judges. And God's judgment is helpful and healing. Here is a picture of brothers and sisters doing life together and holding out God's Word as encouragement. Sometimes that's going to look like, like disciplining or admonishing or hard words, but it's holding out in all humility as brothers and sisters stand together before God's Word, stand together before the cross of Christ in all humility to receive that sweet balm of the Gospel that transforms us, that forgives us, that gives us new life. And as we do that, you see, you see how Dietrich's put it? That's God's judgment. That's not us. As we point each other to Christ and to His good judgment, to His good Word, then we will do well. This week, as you go out to make all kinds of judgments in work, in life, in relationships, in the home, in education, <laughs> would you appreciate the wonder of God's good judgment over your messy judgment, judging? <laughs> but also, would you judge well? Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think of such things that will lead you to Christ, to His shepherding, to His good judging, and to life. Let me pray. Father, Your Word is good, You are good. And yet also, it confronts us sometimes as we're caught up in the evil of this world, as we recognize our own participation in it. And it's hard for us to contemplate ultimate judgment. And we pray for all the implications in our heart and mind that now is spilling out as we think about ourselves and others. And yet through all of that, would we see the one who stepped into this world to push out the tides of hell and to die for us, to lead us home and to make all things right. Father, help us to trust Him, to listen to Him, to live for Him and His glory.